Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being so much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. So this is a special episode because this is a recording of three of the talks from TudorCon 2020. So it was all online in 2020 because we all just lived our lives online. <laughs> And I have not released these talks out to the podcast feed yet. Um, I've just been kind of holding on to them. And I wanted to release them because you only have about a month left to get your tickets for TudorCon 2022, which will be in person in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I don't have a lot of tickets left, but the thing I am going to tell you, the offer that I have <laughs> is that I have set up installment payments, interest-free installment payments, so you can pay over 12 months if you want to come. All you have to do is go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon to read about TudorCon, decide if you want to come. When you decide you want to come, just click to buy your ticket. That'll take you over to my online shop and put it in your cart. Check out as normal. And when you go to check out, choose shop pay. That is the installment setup. So you can actually pay over up to 12 months. So it'd be about $25 a month um, with zero interest. So you can come to TudorCon in September, September 9th through 11th, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Here's some amazing speakers. There's going to be a couple of evenings at the Renaissance Fair, um, feast, music, all kinds of good fun. Um, you can come and get your tickets, englandcast.com slash TudorCon. So this recording is the first three talks from TudorCon 2020. Carol Ann Lloyd and Janet Wertman, both of whom are speaking at this year's TudorCon in person, and um, Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide. And so it's long. Like I think this whole thing is going to be about three hours long. I get it's a commitment. You're not going to listen to it all at once. I understand that. But I wanted to give you a sense of kind of what TudorCon is like, the kinds of talks that happen, and just give you a chance to see what it's like. This, of course, was the virtual one in person. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> so um, Carol Ann Lloyd, Janet Wortman, and Sarah Morris, check out their work. They have amazing YouTube channels and podcasts and all of the places, all of the things. Um, I love each of them for various reasons. Uh, and they are all very, very special people to me. And I'm very, very glad that they were able to speak at TudorCon. And that two of the three of them will be back this year. And that I know them. <laughs> They're, they're awesome. So I'm sure you probably know them already if you're listening to me, but if you don't, you're in for a treat. So I'm just going to turn it over to Carol Ann, Janet, and Sarah Morris. Remember, englandcast.com slash TudorCon to get your tickets for this year. You can pay on the payment plan, zero interest, or you can just pay up front, whatever works. But you really only have about a month left. I'm going to cut off the sales in about a month because I need to give final numbers for catering and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to do it, 
now's the time. Enjoy these talks. I hope you learn a lot. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at TutorCon if it works. All right. Have a wonderful 4th of July weekend. See, I did this the 4th of July weekend because I figured you might have some extra time on your hands. So you might just want to fill that with tutor stuff, right? You can thank me later. <laughs> All right. Have a great weekend. And I'm just turning it over to the TutorCon speakers now. <laughs> Bye. I also wanted to say a big thank you for last night, which was so much fun. And then as things were winding down last night, I started to think, uh-oh, we've had such a good time with the music and the fun and the laughter and the togetherness. And then we're going to get up and I'm going to give a talk that's a little gloomy. And so I don't want to bring everyone down because we do have some betrayal and treachery and violence and executions. But there's a really fun story at the end. So stay with me, okay? So I'm gonna go ahead. If you have any questions and um, Heather and Gloria can let me know if people are raising their hands, but if you have any questions, let me know. And here we go, all right. So we are going to jump in to see the Cypher's Secrets and Spies in the court of Elizabeth I. So, this is a talk about intercepted messages, questions about foreign agents, religious turmoil, transfer of power, charges of treason, threats of invasion. And now you're thinking this crazy woman has just picked up the Washington Post and is reading us that. No, no, no. You might think today's crazy, but today did not start the craziness. It's been crazy for a long time, my friends. So let's see what it was like. Welcome to the Renaissance. For those of you who may have had the fun opportunity to see something rotten, here it is. And they have this great song, Welcome to the Renaissance, and all these wonderful things that are going on during Renaissance times. And yes, we think of the Renaissance that way because we know how it ends. We know Elizabeth stays on the throne and we have Shakespeare and we have all this great stuff and art and music and we can all get together and celebrate it. But we're going to spend a little time today in some of the dark corners and listen to the whispered conversations and see what's going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain a little bit behind some of that glitz and glamour that's so much on the outside. So let's talk for just a minute. And I know you all know this story, but we're just going to set things up because we have the big guy in the middle, Henry VIII. Everything starts with him as it often does. So Henry is obsessed with getting a son. And now that we know there can be really, really great queens of England, we look at Henry and say, dude, you were so wrong. But we have to pause a minute and say, from Henry's perspective, the idea of a queen of England, a queen in charge, not a queen consort, but an actual reigning queen was pretty terrifying. England had tried that once with Matilda. She had not been able to take the throne. There had been a series of civil wars, and she ultimately had to give up her claim to the throne in favor of her son. So when Henry was really determined to get a son, we might not ever understand the way he did it, but we can understand why he was so desperate to have a son. So given that, Henry started, or as his words probably restored the Church of England. As Heather said, it had been around years and years and years ago. Let's bring it back, put the king in charge. And he finally got a son, Edward. And I know we're gonna hear more about Edward. So I will just mention, that Edward, unlike his father, had deep, fervent religious beliefs. Henry VIII did have religious beliefs, but they kept changing. And his primary reason for breaking with Rome and starting the Church of England really wasn't about his beliefs. It was really about his ego in a lot of ways and wanting a son. Edward really believed it. And so he pushed and propelled his country further and further into what became known during Edward's reign as Protestantism. Not that it's anything like what we would call Protestantism today, but for Edward, it was a particular kind of religious reform and he pushed it further and further. 
And then he realized he was dying and his half sister was going to be the heir and he'd been battling her over religion for a long time tried to put jane gray on the throne that didn't work and so it turns out we do end up with mary tudor mary was a fervent 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 catholic again deeply driven by her beliefs and so she took england and swung it so far back into catholicism so england was full of protestants and catholics and mary and Edward each reigned, Mary reigned for five years, Edward reigned for six years. And so the idea that the country was just kind of swinging back and forth and what would happen next. And so of course, what happens next is Elizabeth. Now, when Elizabeth came to the throne in 1553, she attempted to allow some religious, I wouldn't call it exactly toleration, but some realistic view that enforcing religious beliefs was something she didn't really want to deal with. She is famously said to have reported, I have no wish to make windows into men's souls. So she didn't want to really manage what you believed. Her laws as she started, and she did restore the Church of England, but she said someone in the family had to come to church. That was the law. But everybody knew that the rest of that Catholic family was home with a priest having mass. And at the first of Elizabeth's reign, nobody really worried too much about it. In fact, there are wonderful stories of Catholics showing up at the Church of England with cotton sticking out of their ears. So they're so determined not to hear the preaching and people pretty much just laughed and left them alone. So early on, Elizabeth is really sort of trying to make things a little bit settled. The problem is, the day, the day Elizabeth ascended to the throne, the day Mary, her sister, died, and Elizabeth became Queen of England, someone else claimed the throne, and that was Mary, Queen of Scots. We're going to hear more about her later, too, but I'm just going to look at this from the Elizabeth and Mary perspective. And uh, Mary was married to the Dauphin of France, and a year after Elizabeth's death, in 1559, the King of France died. The Dauphin became the king, Mary became the queen of France. And you can see here, Mary and Francois, the king and queen of France, the coin they had cast for them says, Francois et Marie, by the grace of God, king and queen of France, Scotland, England, and Ireland. Yep, they were claiming from day one to be king of queen of England. And their coat of arms also quartered the arms of England on Mary's side. So. They were making a real claim to that. Now, they were in France, and they didn't act on it, but they were making a public claim, and that made a big difference. Elizabeth, on the other hand, was in England, and there were some laws passed. Parliament enacted, for example, the Act of Uniformity, and that basically required everyone legally to be a member of the Church of England, to show up to church. There were some fines if you never showed up to church. But early in her reign, and you see her here, this is such a gorgeous portrait. And I have to just say, I was so excited. I was able to go up to Yale, the British Library at Yale, and see this in February, right before the world closed down. So that's one of my real highlights of this very tough year. Um, but you can see this is a this is during the time where she was sort of saying, sure, I'll get married. And there are all these marriage elements, carnations and a very flowery background. And of course, I'll get married. She was also saying, I'm never going to get married. So Elizabeth was playing with marriage all along. But at the beginning of her reign, there, there was a fairly settled attitude. She was moving toward marriage. Mary and Francois were fine. And it looked like maybe things could go along for a while. However, some changes happened in France that made things impossible. So Francois, Mary's husband, died after just over a year of reigning. And Mary went from being queen of France to being the queen dowager of France. Now, sometimes that person, especially as young as Mary was, might have stayed in France and been part of the royal court. But Francois's mother and Mary's mother-in-law was Catherine de' Medici. And Catherine de' Medici was very able to make you feel unwelcome. And Mary was clearly unwelcome. So she heads back to Scotland in 1561. Now she is the world's, or at least Europe's most eligible bachelorette, sort of challenging Elizabeth for some of those men. 
and she chose out of all the people presented to her, Henry Lord Darnley. Now, Elizabeth didn't want her to marry Darnley because Darnley was an English subject with a clear claim to the throne. The Scottish lords did not want their queen to marry an English subject and they didn't like Darnley. They'd sort of seen him and they were not too happy to have him be their king. And actually the Catholic church that Mary so loved didn't want her to marry him because they were first cousins. They were both the grandchildren of Margaret Tudor, Henry VIII's um, sister. And so they were very closely related, but Mary asked for a dispensation and married him anyway. As you may recall, the marriage falls apart really quickly. And Darnley is one of the men mur who murder Mary's friend, Nicolesio, right in front of her. And then she gets pregnant, she is pregnant, she has a baby, it's Darnley's baby, he's the heir, but the marriage isn't really any better. And suddenly, Darnley ends up dead. And you see a little image of Kirk Field there in this house, Mary leaves, kaboom! And Darnley is not kaboomed in the house. In fact, he escapes, jumps out in the garden, and you can see he's been strangled in the garden. So uh, there is someone clearly associated with this and accused of this, which is Bothwell. And on the right of the screen, there is a placard that was printed. This is an early cipher because there is an image that is associated with Mary and that's a mermaid. And you might guess that that's not a super um, flattering image if you're the queen to be a mermaid. Mermaids are not the most reliable moral creatures. And then there's Bothwell with him in image surrounded by knives. So this is really accusing Mary and Bothwell of this murder. And this is the kind of thing that now with the printing press is able to be printed and spread. This is one of the things that happens. We see here in the Renaissance, communication is easy. When it's easy, it's everywhere. And that means there's a desire to control it. And when there's a desire to control, there's a desire to disguise. And we see this happening. And this is a really great early example of that. So in 1570, things have really changed. Mary has come to England and she is now England. In England, she expected Elizabeth to sort of rally and give her an army and put her back on the Scottish throne. And Elizabeth's like, oh, not so fast. The Pope sees Mary in England and says, this is our opportunity to put Mary, Queen of Scots, on the English throne, our Catholic daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots. So he excommunicates Elizabeth and he goes so far as to say, loyal English Catholics, I am speaking to you now. The person on the throne is not a true queen. She's a usurper. You would serve God by getting rid of her. So that would not be a sin if you got rid of the queen. And by the way, if you are a loyal Catholic, you have to choose. You either support me, the Pope, or you support that usurping queen. But if you support her, you're not a true Catholic. He used other words than that. But basically, the Pope, in a lot of ways, pushed things to a crisis point and actually made it illegal to be an active Catholic in England. Because according to his definition, if you were a true Catholic, you did not support the queen. So there were some problems that were becoming pretty real. There were also threats to Protestants abroad. And uh, we have a picture here of the Earl of Moray. He had been the regent in Scotland for baby James. You know, Mary Queen of Scots abdicated her throne in honor of her baby son. Moray, a Protestant, had been the regent and he had been assassinated by Catholics. So Catholics could attempt to take over Scotland. That was not unheard of. Also, in France, this other image is, is of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which happened in 1572. And the, the people in France, the Catholics rose up and the Protestants, men, women, children, were just slaughtered in the streets. They talked about the river running with bodies and blood. It was just a terrible time as thousands and thousands of Catholics slaughtered their Protestant friends, neighbors. Well, they probably weren't friends. Their neighbors and whole communities of Protestants were wiped out. So it was a very, very violent time. And I'm just going to mention that while this happened, a man named Francis Walsingham was ambassador to France at this time. He was living in Paris. It happened right outside his house. In fact, Protestants were flocking 
to Walsingham's house because as the English ambassador, his house was considered sanctuary for Protestants because of course he was a member of a Protestant nation. So he really did experience this in a very direct and personal way. Now, there weren't just dangers abroad though, there were dangers at home. And so we have here, um, Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, who was involved in the first rebellion after Mary, Queen of Scots showed up, the Northern Rebellion. And we have, that was in 1569-70. And then in 1571, the Duke of Norfolk, our other character on the right here, who's Elizabeth's cousin, still turns against her. And in the Rodolphi plot, his plan is to put Mary, Queen of Scots on the throne and then marry her himself, making himself the King of England. So Elizabeth is challenged from abroad and now she's being challenged by some of her strongest, most powerful nobles at home. And this is when we bring in Elizabeth's team. This is very much Team Elizabeth in this period of time because they are her people. And the, at the head is William Cecil. Cecil was her first minister. He's her principal secretary. And he associates Elizabeth with the survival of Protestants and Protestantism and said, serve God by serving the queen for all other service is indeed bondage to the devil. So he has lined up totally the same being a Protestant and being a true English man or woman and serving the queen. So he is at the head of government and he recruits that previous ambassador to France. Now, Francis Walsingham had spent all kinds of time. He spent the entire reign of Mary Tudor on the continent, making connections, establishing a network of Protestant contacts in the hopes that eventually Elizabeth would come to the throne. And she does. So first he's her ambassador, then he comes home from being ambassador to France, and he becomes, is often called her spy master. He has networked through the French court. He knows how it's run. He has a network built up at all levels of society throughout Europe. He is ideal to be the spy master. And he says there is less danger in fearing too much than too little. He always assumes the worst and prepares for the worst because he experienced the worst. That Bar St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre was terrible and he saw that and was part of that. Then we have the famous John Dee. Now he was an eccentric character. He wasn't an official member of Team Elizabeth, but he was part of her team. He chose the day of her coronation. He was one of those that straddled that line between math and mm, numerology, between science and mm, magic. And here you see him performing a magic trick in front of the queen. Now, because he was so eccentric a character, John Dee could travel throughout Europe and all kinds of people were willing to meet with him just to learn about him. So he was able to move through the corridors of Europe. And when he would send letters home to Elizabeth, he had a very special signature. He was the tutor of Robert Dudley, Elizabeth's BFF. And you know, Dudley, who became the Earl of Leicester, was, her, her nickname was her eyes. And so whenever there were two O's in a letter, Dudley would draw little eyebrows over them. Well, the two O's together started with John D. His cipher was two O's and then a horizontal line and a slanted vertical line. You might recognize that. Yes, many scholars believe that John D. was the first 007 and Ian Fleming certainly did pick up on some of those early records when he was creating the characters. So just a little bit of trivia there for you. Now, as we move into the 1570s and 80s, we have a time where there's an invasion, not of people, but of ideas. And there are people carrying those ideas. So we have someone like William Allen on the left who establishes seminaries, Catholic seminaries. It's by now, you can't be Catholic in England publicly, so you can't train priests. Well, Allen sets up seminaries. He's invited by the Pope to set them up in Rome to train Catholic priests and then send them to England in disguise. One of them, for example, is Edmund Campion. He's trained in Rome, comes into England. He's a priest. He's rallying people to the side of Catholics. And what's their big goal? Get rid of the usurper on the throne. There's a woman, and this is just an example of the kinds of ways women were involved. This is Margaret Clitheroe, 
And so in her grand home in England, she harbored priests. They had to hide. They hid all of their vestments so they could practice math mass, but they also had to hide themselves. And this is Harvington Hall, and you see in the red boxes some of the priest holes. And Margaret Clithrow was someone who was arrested. She was caught hiding priests. She was arrested. She was accused of this, and she was executed. So it was a very dangerous time for Catholics. Here are a few of the priest holes. Some of them, the one in the center, some of them are so well hidden that they weren't found for hundreds of years, long after this period is over. When they did some revisions or reconstruction of houses, they found this little area and they couldn't figure out what it was. Well, it was priest holes. They were built in, they were very carefully done. And there are amazing stories because as you try to control what people are doing, they look for ways to disguise it. And it was done in the houses, and it was also done as we find in the writing. So here we have Mary Queen of Scots, and she is now the Catholic alternative for the throne of England. People are, Catholics are believing that she should be queen. They're being taught by priests like Campion that, that we need England, we in England need to rise up and put her on the throne. And people, who see themselves as real zealots are sort of vulnerable to this kind of uproar. And one of those is Babington. And Babington is identified as someone who's a zealot for Mary and willing to do anything for her and to die in the cause. And so he's someone who becomes involved in one of the most famous plots. So now, in addition to disguising houses, there's a time for disguising writing. So I'm wondering if you know, and I know we don't have time for me to check the chat box, but I'll just say, ask yourself, do you know the difference between a cipher and a code? If a letter is in cipher or if it's in code? So I'll tell you, I went to the International War Museum in London to get that answer. And a cipher is a letter by letter substitution of a word to give you a different word. So if you are going to create a cipher based on somebody's name, and let's think of Francis Walsingham, what you would do is first write out the name and eliminate any duplicate character. So we have Francis, and then under that, you write every letter. So you start with F, so you're going to start with A, R, B, A, C, and you create your cipher based on the person's name. This is something we used to do at the Fulcher when I worked there with kids. They really got into it. It's very straightforward, really fun and easy. And you just line up the alphabet and then go that way. You have to know the name to know how to break the cipher. A code, on the other hand, is a symbol that is used to represent a word or an idea. We use these all the time. We might not think of them that way, but we do use codes all the time. Well, Mary Queen of Scots was writing to her contacts in France and in Spain and in Rome, which by the way, she was told not to do, but she was doing it. And because she was writing in code and in cipher, she became fairly casual and straightforward in what she was willing to say. Not realizing, as Francis Bacon said, the art of ciphering hath for a relative an art of deciphering. And here are examples from the university in Scotland and the National Archives in Scotland of actual ciphers used by Mary Queen of Scots because when she was arrested and when the rooms were searched, they found them. You see, Walsingham had flipped one of Mary's friends, Ballard, and was able to infiltrate and get some of the ciphers. And Walsingham also had a great decipherer, Philippe, who was able to look at this jumble of letters and codes and work it out. And so, there was an effort and a successful effort to capture. And there was a particular letter between Mary and Babington. That's why it's known as the Babington plot. Where the letter from Babington, you see his signature there, to Mary said in cipher, 
for the dispatch of the usurper, and of course that's Elizabeth, there be six noble gentlemen who for the zeal they bear to the Catholic cause and your majesty's service will undertake that tragical execution. So clearly he is planning the assassination of the queen. Everything depends on Mary's response because if she agrees, then she is implicated and her response is, by what means do the six gentlemen deliberate to proceed? And that letter is intercepted. They had a deal with the brewer that when beer barrels were taken into Mary, she had hollowed out the stopper and would put her letters in there and then reseal the stopper. And Walsingham had, she bribed the brewer to do that. Walsingham double bribed the brewer. So Walsingham's men took out and deciphered the letters before sending them on. So they got the letter and they were able to arrest Mary. She was found guilty. Now, Elizabeth claims that she never intended to have the execution warrant that she did sign after Mary was found guilty carried out, but Elizabeth signed the warrant and it was carried out and Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed. And this is the sort of low point in our fun talk. It's going to get fun again in a minute, I promise. But all of these ciphers and codings and secrets were used as part of the trial. And this is an interesting thing. This is new. This is happening during this period of time and shows a whole sort of explosion of the idea of what they called spirey at the time. Deciphering, intercepting, planting agents, all of that that we think of as very modern really had its beginning here in what's called the early modern or the Renaissance period. The death of Mary, Queen of Scots, of course, did not end the Catholic attempts to take Elizabeth's throne and Philip launched the Armada and continued to call it his holy war. God would protect him and protect his forces and guarantee victory as he rode and sailed against the usurper. Well, when your enemy calls it a holy war and then you win as Elizabeth did, it's really easy to spin that in your favor. And so here we have Elizabeth prevailing and becoming the queen of a Protestant nation. And in fact, this is a real turning point. The Armada continued to try, but that 1588 victory is a real turning point in Protestantism, as it was known by this time, taking a permanent hold in England. But that doesn't mean individuals aren't still trying. So here's our final story of the talk. There's a man named Jean Girard, and he is a Catholic priest who's smuggled into England. And eventually he is arrested. He's arrested in 1594 after the Armada and toward the end of Elizabeth's reign. And he's put in the Tower of London and he's in the Tower of London for many years. And in, by, by three years, four years later in 1597, he's kind of made friends with his jailer. And he says to his jailer, you know, my family wants to send me some oranges. Would, would that be okay? And they're just going to wrap them in some paper and send them to me. And his jailer said, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. So he takes these oranges and he peels them and he uses the peel. You might be able to see if you look really closely at that picture on the left in front of the picture, and the candle, you see some rope and then you see it looks like crosses. Yes. He used the orange peel to make crosses so he and his fellow Catholics could have mass, some rosary beads as well, out of the orange peel so they could celebrate mass in jail right under the noses of the jailer. And it goes more. There's more than that. He takes the oranges and with orange juice, he writes on that paper messages that cannot be seen. Have you guys done this with your kids with lemon juice? You can do it with orange juice as well. So he writes secret messages, then he writes a regular letter to his friends. Oh, I'm doing fine, thank you for the oranges. But a secret message that says, I'll be at this spot at this time. And that's his cell, which is set up in the tower. And Jean Girard is one of the few people who manages to escape from the Tower of London. And when he is able to escape from the tower where no one escapes, 
he sells that and spins that as being helped by God. I mean, really, if you can get out of the tower right under the nose of all those guards, you've got somebody on your side. So Girard is able to escape, and Time Magazine calls his escape from the Tower of London one of the top 10 prison escapes of all time. So even in our day, they continue to look to that as a really amazing escape. So that's a quick trip through the ciphers, secrets, and spies of the court of Queen Elizabeth, bringing it right to today. A lot of the things that we see happening today in terms of the spirey and some of the excitement about messages intercepted and coding and encrypting and all of that really had its beginning. And it's not its very beginning, but it's real establishment during the reign of Elizabeth I. So I'm really happy to have questions. While I'm answering some questions, I wanted to put up just a little bit about me. If you wanna reach out and hear more, I would love to hear from people. So there's my email, carolann at carolannlloyd.com. My um, handle is at shakeuphistory. And as Heather mentioned, I just started, I'm a very much a podcast newbie, but I've just started my podcast, British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I am going to have some membership programs coming and there will be a TutorCon special. So if you're interested in that, it's not ready to go right now, but if you're interested, send me an email or hook up with me on social media and I'll get a list going. So there is a TutorCon special for the membership. But now I'm happy to hear from you and what questions you have. Awesome. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm going through the chat as well. If people have any um, questions that they want to ask directly, raise your hand and that'll put you to the top of the participant list and we'll be able to call on you. Um, let's see. People say, love your energy. Thank you for such a wonderful presentation. Oh, thank um, you. Thank people you. love you. Your presentation was great. Let's see. This was so interesting. Thank you. That was fascinating. That was wonderful. You know, there were a couple of different comments early on. I don't know that they were questions directly, um, but people talking about, you know, the threat that Mary Queen of Scots was to Elizabeth and how, even though she might not have intended to have been a threat that she was, um, and let's see, how did the, now this is an interesting one, how did the public perceive Queen Elizabeth I after she killed Mary Queen of Scots? And then there's a couple others coming in, but maybe you can talk about that one first. Well, certainly it hardened the Catholics against Elizabeth. So the, there were, despite um, the efforts to say, oh, you know, you have to be against Elizabeth if you're a Catholic, there were a lot of Catholics who felt like Elizabeth had done more good than bad, and she'd been on the throne a long time. Um, and by the end of her reign, there were more people who had been born during her reign and had been baptized into the Church of England than were Catholics. And so that tide was really starting to turn. So the people who were Protestant were accepting of the danger Mary Queen of Scots posed but it hardened the Catholics against her. And certainly Philip used it as an excuse to sail and launch the Armada. And the Pope really used it as a calling card. So politically it was used that way. And again, it sort of reinforced the split in England, but there were fewer Catholics as the years went on. Now we still, I mean, it's not over because we still have the whole Guy Fawkes gun platter plot to come during James's reign. So it's not over, but the end of her reign, things did sort of settle. There was still a Jean Girard, there were still people in the tower, but the, the direct threats were just a little bit more settled toward the end. I think it's, um, it's interesting how long that Catholic issue stayed in England. Um, I remember reading the Poldark books, and that was set, you know, in the early 19th century. And he was fighting for Catholic rights to vote. And when did Catholics finally, it wasn't until like the late 19th century or early 20th century. Yeah, I mean, voting vote. being in Parliament, it was a really long time. I mean, this religious thing really became divisive a lot longer than we might have expected. And of course, there's Ireland, so we won't even yeah, right, right. that. Yes, yes, <laughs> speaking of religious chaos, yes. 
Yeah. So there's a couple more chats coming in, but also we have a person with their hand raised. So Irina, I am going to ask you to unmute here and you will be able to unmute yourself and feel free to ask your question. And then we'll go through, let's see. There we go. I think you are not muted. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> great. Um, my question would be, um, I don't know if it's necessarily linked to today's topic, but um, do you think it's possible that Elizabeth might have been involved in plots during her sister Mary's reign? That's a really good question. Uh, the Wyatt Rebellion, in particular, was staged during her sister's reign with a goal of putting Elizabeth on the throne. So this is not, you know, a new idea here, certainly. And that re that rebellion was really launched in response to Mary Tudor, Queen Mary I, deciding to marry Philip of Spain and bring a lot of Spanish and Catholic influence in and kind of wipe out the Protestants. Elizabeth denied involvement. And when he was about to be executed, Wyatt reinforced, and you know, at this time you have to remember, people really believed that they went right from their death to meet God. And it was a big deal at your death to proclaim something. And Wyatt proclaimed Elizabeth's innocence right before he was executed. So maybe he was willing to go to his death lying and protecting her, but many people saw that as a statement that she was not involved. So we don't know where her heart was, but in terms of actual involvement, both she denied it and he denied it right at his death. Mm. That's a great question. We have a we have another hand raised, which oh. is Lisa. Oh, Lisa. Um, so Lisa, I'm going to lower your hand and please feel free to unmute yourself and go. Hey, Carol, first that was extremely interesting and that was like awesome. Did Mary either have like people at I'm sorry, did uh, Mary Queen of Scots, so many Marys, have people at Mary the first court and that's how she got the news so quickly of her death because you said that she proclaimed herself queen the same day Elizabeth did, or did she have spies? How would, did they know how that would have worked? Well, it, uh, Mary later said. Or, or, or even like close to time, like would she have been, would her people, because she was a Catholic, been part of Mary Queen of, you know, of England's court and vice versa? Because they're both Catholics? Yes, and so um, I may have exaggerated to say the very day. So I I will um, okay. follow my story there and say, yeah, but, but Mary Queen of Scots' father-in-law, Henri II of France, was hugely interested in getting England, which may have been one of the reasons when Mary Tudor started to get ill at the end of her reign, the marriage between Mary Queen of Scots and the Dauphin was quickly brought to pass. It wasn't planned for a little while more, but Henri II really wanted his daughter-in-law to be Queen of England. So it was at his level that the contacts were maintained with Catholic Mary Tudor. So there was a direct connection there. They were very interested. And in fact, some people think, well, why didn't Philip, of Spain recently widowed, you know, when Mary Tudor died, when Mary I died, why didn't he throw his support behind the Catholics at that moment? Philip actually supported Elizabeth's claim to the throne. Well, Philip of Spain wanted nothing to do with Mary, Queen of Scots, being Queen of England. The only thing Philip hated more than Protestants was the French. So Philip, for a while, was actually on Elizabeth's side. Eventually, when Mary was no longer Queen of France, was Queen of Scotland, and then was in England, then Philip's all on Mary's side. But he didn't want her to be there when she was Queen of France. Interesting. Perfect. Um, I'm going through. There's a couple more chat questions. What was the tipping point where Elizabeth decided to execute Mary? I think it was becoming more and more difficult for her to deny Mary's involvement. And so when she agreed 
to that um, investigation and the Babington plot, I think there was a part of her that knew if Mary was indeed found guilty, she would be faced with this. So I think she kind of knew it was coming. And Cecil and Walsingham really laid it on the line for her that as long as Mary lived and they could prove she's been trying to kill you in these events in the past when we took care of the other people after Rodolphe, we got rid of Norfolk, happened again, got rid of other people, happened again. As long as she was there, she was going to continue to be a threat. And I think Elizabeth may have finally just agreed with that. It was very hard for her. Mary was her cousin. Um, executing a queen brought back all these memories of the way her mother died. Besides, if a queen of Scotland can be executed, why not a queen of England? I mean, it was a huge issue. I think she just really, her advisors and, you know, Cecil was really, had, had really been so loyal and so right for so long. I think ultimately she trusted him that it had to happen. And then she pretends she didn't, you know, she signed it and then pretended she didn't mean it to happen. Right. And they all went along with that sort of. Plausible deniability. Plausible deniability. Excellent. That's why the doctor turns around. And around duel, so he right? could have deniability. Yes. We'll, we'll all break into Hamilton now. <laughs> yeah. Somebody put a comment about Helen Manuel Miranda could write a musical out of this. Oh, that would be wonderful. Let's get on him. If anyone we should has a start contact, a campaign. Manuel. Let's to do get it. him to, to do that. Um, yeah. So there's a couple Walsingham questions in a row here. What happened to Walsingham? And then kind of part of that, oh, somebody said he had died of an illness, I believe, but maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. And then did Walsingham have any Irish spies or agents working for him? You know, Walsingham is a fascinating character. And I um, I don't have all my Walsingham notes right here. So I'm I'm going to just admit that I don't always remember everything. But one of the things that happened, and he did die not too long after the Armada. He was continuing to work. So Walsingham and Cecil knew what was going to happen during the Armada. They knew when the ships were launched. They had good idea where they were headed. They knew how many were coming. And they knew that if all the things happened the way Philip planned for them to happen, they were in big trouble. Because once, if, if those Spanish ships had made it and landed and the Spanish soldiers had gotten off the ships, they were in such numbers that having all the information, they really knew how bad it looked. Fortunately, Francis Drake did his deal. And, and you know that storm that actually messed up all the Spanish ships? Some people believe that John Dee either prophesied about the storm or if you really believed in magic, some people believed he created the storm. And John Dee may very well have been the model for Prospero in the Tempest in terms of creating a storm. But all that to say, all these people are still working. Walsingham dies not too long after, of an illness as you say, after the Armada victory. One of the things that's fascinating is he had so many spies in so many places. I can't speak to Ireland specifically, I'd have to look that up. But people were reporting back to him after his death. And Cecil was like, who's this? Who's this? They had to search for records because Walsingham had not shared all the information, even with Cecil. He had so many fingers and so many pots in so many countries. And people were reporting back for a long time and somebody new would pop up and they'd think, oh, had no idea. So his impact and the fact that he set up little spy schools, Walsingham set up little spy schools in different pockets in England, certainly, but also in Europe. He had so many contacts in Europe. So that really is the beginning. People consider Walsingham the beginning of modern espionage. So there you have it. Nice. Now here's, um, do you think Marlowe was one of Walsingham's spies? Um, that would that's a I've heard that before that Walsingham or that Christopher Marlowe might have been in that there there are theories there are all kinds of theories about who else I mean once you know these people were unknown and certainly the Catholics were coming in under assumed identities and and so why not it is possible that is a going theory that Marlowe was in fact not killed 
by a knife fight in the eye in a in a sort of barroom brawl as we might call it today but that he was smuggled out so he could continue his fiery work i haven't seen anything conclusive but if it's true it probably wouldn't be anything conclusive it's a great story here um somebody says what is your personal opinion on elizabeth's execution of mary so i know this is controversial but i believe i do believe she had no choice i she when cecil when she first asked cecil to be her principal secretary at the very beginning of her reign um i i won't quote it exactly but there are books that have this because it was an official request that she made of him and so it was recorded and she asked him to tell her the truth basically tell me what i need to hear not what i want to hear and she did rely on cecil they argued they fought she didn't always take his advice but when he really laid it on the line and said this is absolutely what has to happen she had learned to trust him over time mm -hmm. and i think she trusted him ultimately when he said this has to happen so as awful as it was i think it had to happen um do you think the casket letters are real or fakes so the casket letters are some letters implicating Mary, Queen of Scots, in the murder of Darnley. Supposedly, they are letters that she was writing to Bothwell and they were planning it together. Now, these are these are controversial in all kinds of ways. Some people say, no, they're actually letters between Bothwell and his wife, Jean, and that, yes, they were writing back and forth, but it's not Mary. Other people said, well, they don't actually have the letters. People had just seen the letters and summarized the letters. So there are all kinds of questions about the letters. So I am not sure that the casket letters are real. I am suspicious about Mary's possible involvement, but at least knowledge that when she left that house that night, when she left Kirkofield that night to go to a party and decided to spend the night somewhere else, she knew something was going to happen. So I think there's there's some culpability there, but I'm not sure I'm ready. I, I have not been convinced that the casket letters are real. So maybe there's something out there, you know, we're all find, always finding new stuff, which is marvelous. One of the best things about history is that it's always changing and we're finding new stuff. But so far, I'm not convinced. Let's put it that way. Okay. So I just looked and there's like 70 new messages here. So I'm going to try and keep up with these as much as I can. Um, and I might miss some. If I did, I apologize. And if people still have questions, they can connect with you on your on yes. your socials there. Yes, if we, um, if we run out of time, because I know we have other people, but please connect with me. I love to hear from people. So. Yeah. So here, several people have chatted about Elizabeth having no right to order the execution of a fellow royal. Can Carol address that? I, I can, and you may or may not accept this theory. Um, by the time Mary came to England, she was not exactly a royal. She was queen dowager of France for the rest of her life. But that's not really considered a royal position, especially when she's been kicked out by Catherine de Medici. She was queen mother of the King of Scotland, but again, that is not an official royal title. So at the point where, and, and Mary says that when she's put on trial, she says, you have no right to put me on trial. I am not an English citizen, I am not subject to your law, and I am royal. Okay, but she had come to England. She had participated in actions against the queen, and she had been found guilty. And so since she did not have an official royal title by that time and had been found guilty, that's what I think does give Elizabeth the right. Although I know it's controversial and, and, and very difficult to accept that it's okay to chop off your cousin's head. I, I get that. <laughs> um, did government spies favor ciphers or codes or if they used both? 
They did use both. And one of the things that's really fun is to look at the word codes. So a letter would be some in cipher and then Cecil, for example, when he wrote about the French, when he wrote about the French king, he didn't think too highly of Henri III. And his code word for him was rien, which means nothing because he thought he had no power. When he wrote about Catherine de Medici, his code word for her was tout, the French word tout, which means all, because he thought Catherine de Medici had all the power. So a letter would include some ciphers, some code words, and some code images. And the more they could use, they thought the more safe it was. And Simon Sig, who's um, a famous um, expert in cryptology, Feels Somebody like, mentioned his book. Yeah, so it feels like Mary got way too confident uh, in her codes and ciphers and was far more candid than she had any right to be, that she just really over-trusted the fact that her letters had codes and ciphers and she really believed they couldn't be worked out. Yeah. And they could. Um, okay, let's try and breeze through here for like another two or three minutes and then we'll... Um, have a quick little break while we get Janet set up. So um, didn't Philip also consider marrying Elizabeth himself? He did. He did. Um, he proposed. I don't know how much he wanted to, and she turned him down right away, but he did. Was Francis Walsingham's position as spymaster the first, or were there other spymasters in other countries for him to contend with? Well, my guess is, and I have not done a lot of research on the other countries, my guess is there was probably someone in France and in Spain who, uh, who had that position in the government or who was working on things like the, where the agents were going. Certainly, um, someone like William Allen could have been considered a religious spy master as he was training priests, not only in the Catholic priesthood, but also in how to assume another identity, to, to hide what they were doing, to speak in ways. And toward the end of Elizabeth's reign, there's this notion of how Catholics were trained to speak, and equivocation is the term that's used, in ways where did you see the priest come into your house and the catholic would be trained to say i did not watch the priest enter the door because he came in through the window but what i have said is that i did not watch him enter the door you know so they were definitely trained in these ways and so there were those kinds of people training them in these ways. So absolutely, I, I can't speak with a whole lot of detail. There's evidence of that happening in England. And I'm guessing that in these, these seminaries, they were teaching the priests how to teach the people to equivocate so they couldn't be found guilty of lying to the government. So yeah. Interesting. Then somebody has a book recommendation here. So people, uh, The Reckoning, the Murder of Christopher Marlowe. I think that was when we were talking about the um, Christopher Marlowe. So there are many movies on this subject. Is there one that tells the story most accurately? Oh, that's so hard. I really, I really don't know that I can say there's a movie that's, that's the most accurate. I would be um, happy to put together a reading list and I don't know how, Heather, you can help me make that available. Mm -hmm. But sure. it's really, there are a lot of books that are really accurate. I'm just trying to think, I don't really think, because in a movie, what you're doing is you're trying to be entertaining. And so you change the things that you need to. Yeah. My yeah. favorite, I will say my favorite portrayal of Elizabeth, not necessarily on this issue, but just sort of in general, is the really, really old Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson. Yeah. I just love, love, love that. Um, but, you know, the recent stuff, a couple of recent movies have had the meeting, Elizabeth and Mary, they never met. I know we would love to imagine a meeting, but it never happened. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and then let's see, there's somebody asked if you could elaborate about priest holes. And that is a subject. I actually did a podcast series on Catholics in England and priest holes, Nicholas Owen, and uh, he was the yes. fantastic architect and uh, yes. who, who created all of them. So there's a, 
I don't think we can talk about preschools here. Um, that, that's a subject. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah but uh, if you want to dig deeper in, a good place to start is with Nicholas Owen because he was the famous architect who they, they still are finding his priest holes. Yes, they are. When they do renovations on these wonderful homes, they are still finding just these amazing tiny spaces. Um, and, and there are just wonderful records of it. Yeah. So amazing. Um, so I think it's 5.59, 10.59 or whatever. I don't know. It's whatever. <laughs> it's something 59. <laughs> something 59. So I think we will call it a day here. If you didn't get your question answered, um, all of Carol Ann's socials are here. So yeah, email please. her, hook up with her, blow up her socials. Um, and that will be Check out the podcast. Yeah. Listen to her podcast. Absolutely. Um, check. And when you have all your membership stuff and everything like that, let me know. And uh, okay. you're reading kind of stuff we will send that yep. out so thank you so much thank Carolyn. you it's so good to see everybody i wish we were in person but next it's year. wonderful to know you're here so next year yes. sign up for next year next year but also this year is amazing too because we have so many more people yeah. from all over the world so i love it um so the next person coming up is going to be Janet Wortman and the fabulous Janet Wortman. She's going to be speaking on the reign of Edward the Edward Tudor, Edward the Sixth. Um, I wanted to give you a piece of music that Alexis, who is singing for us tomorrow, before we get started with Janet, um, Alexis, who is singing for us tomorrow, she was thinking about things she could do to create um, just some fun music and different experiences for us. And we were talking about um, different music through the through the period, and I think this is cool to play before Janet's piece because she put together a, a virtual choir doing Thomas Tallis's "If You Love Me." Now, the thing about "If You Love Me," it is the quintessential piece of music that was written during the Protestant reign of Edward VI. And there's a very, and I'm going to put a YouTube link in here for you guys to go check it out. Um, she just sent it to me this morning, um, and. Before I do that, though, the, the thing about the Protestant and the music, and we could go on about this forever, but the, the one thing was that during the reign of Edward VI, and I'm sure Janet's going to talk about this, we, we see this whitewashing over of the Catholic, um, of anything that had any kind of smell of Catholicism. So any paintings, any stained glass windows, this is when we see all of the choir books being destroyed, which breaks my heart. Um, but they also had a rule in music, it was like this official rule that they didn't want this polyphony that you see early on in in the you know 20 30 years before this religious polyphony they wanted stuff that was easy to understand and stuff that would keep people focused on the word of the lord rather than just the music and taking people to these catholic places so thomas dallas who managed to write music under all four well there were five but under four tudor monarchs um he wrote this piece of music called If You Love Me, and it abided by this rule that they had called that was basically you needed to have one note per syllable so that you could understand and you didn't see these long drawn out pieces of music. So Alexis put together, it's a very short piece. And as we get Janet set up here, getting her going, I thought it was a good time to put that in because she's going to be talking about Edwards reign and this was music that was written during the reign of edward the sixth um so i just put in this youtube link it's right there in the chat feel free to go over and check that out and um and that's alexis is singing the alto part and she's going to be singing for us tomorrow as well and it's a virtual choir that she put together just for us for TudorCon with thomas tellis's if you love me so you can go check that out as we're getting janet set up Okay, altos forever. I know, like that's another hashtag that we need to get going. Is like altos forever. <laughs> and so, Carol Ann, thank you so very much. And Janet, Janet, I can't. There's so many people here. I can't get to you directly. I know I saw you come in. Can you raise your hand? That will bring you to the top of the screen. And while people are listening to the music, we'll quietly get you. Set. Sam Lee's on sea, men 
So can you imagine having all of that happen live, in person? Wasn't that fun? Right? That's what TudorCon is like. So if you want to come this year in person, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, um, at the beautiful winery outside of the Renaissance Fair in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, um, go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon to learn more about the place, the dates, September 9th through 11th. Get your tickets. Uh, you can pay with the payment plan. Remember, you just click to buy your ticket. And then when you go to check out, just choose shop pay. That's the installment setup. And you can pay up to 12 installments interest-free. All right. Hey, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful 4th of July weekend. I hope it's safe. I hope it is enjoyable, restful, all of the wonderful things. And um, it's my first 4th of July back in America in since 2014. So looking forward to some celebration with family. Hopefully you have a long weekend as well. And just listen to three hours of tutor tutor madness so go you it's a commitment it's a commitment i get it all right um thank you so much and i will speak with you again soon i am working on another episode for two weeks from now on none such palace henry the eighth's um massive dream palace that he built after the death of jane seymour so that will be coming out in about two weeks all right talk to you later Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>